Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Radio is a tool for organizing, educating, and reaching people on the inside. That's what WPKN's producer and community organizer Luis Luna says. He co-produces Abolition Transmission, which is a radio show produced by incarcerated abolitionists across the country. Coming up, we'll hear from him and preview the latest episode that's premiering tonight on WPKN. And we have another preview with Connecticut Public's investigative reporter, Bria Lloyd. She'll take us behind the scenes of the latest cut line, all about transforming corrections in Connecticut, and that also premieres tonight on CPTV. But first, Willard Correctional Institution in Enfield will be the third prison in Connecticut to close in two years, with prison admissions on a steep decline. Radgowski Correctional Center and Northern Correctional Institution have also closed. Joining us now to discuss this recent trend and the resources needed to smooth re-entry is Jaden Edison. He's a Connecticut Mirror justice reporter who's been covering the issue. Thanks so much for joining us, Jaden. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Jaden, so Willard will be the third prison to close because of shrinking populations as of April 1st. What can you tell us about this larger trend? Yeah, so I mean, to your point, Willard will be the the third facility in the last two years to shutter operations joining um, Northern Correctional Institution and also Rogowski. And essentially, Angel Kiros, the DOC commissioner, when he was appointed commissioner in 2020, he highlighted a mission to essentially shut down some of these facilities, right? And, and to meet, you know, fiscal and budget responsibilities and also to match a declining uh, population of, of people who are being, you know, incarcerated. Like, as you noted, uh, there's been a, a steep decline in people who, who are being admitted to DOC facilities. I mean, since 2013, you've had DOC admissions decrease by north of 11,000 people, right? So we're seeing vast, you know, increases in people who are who are no longer being, you know, admitted, you know, into these facilities. Uh, and I should also know there was an increase in the last fiscal year, but when you compare the, those numbers to pre-pandemic levels, you just, again, the, the trends are, are pretty consistent. So the, the closure of these prisons are, are, are in line with, you know, it's saving the state north of, of $20 million, right, by, by closing three of the, the three facilities um, in total um, and annual operating expenses. So when you talk about meeting budget responsibilities, that's also a part of the conversation. But also, I think the notable part to a lot of people, you know, who work in this space is the fact that you have less people who are being incarcerated at this point when you compare it to where we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Right. And you mentioned the the numbers have decreased by more than 11,000. I think it's it's closer to about 11,600 people based on data from the agency. And like you mentioned, there has been an increase in the last fiscal year, which I think emissions rose by more than 4,300 people. Um, this was a spike during COVID. Do you, are you aware if that has an impact on on the facilities right now or not right now or you know, during that time? 
Yes, I mean, so I, I think, you know, like, like you know, most other, you know, agencies sort of having to grapple, you know, with the pandemic. I think for the DOC, it was the same thing, you know, during that time, they were kind of struggling with kind of how to handle this uh, this once in a lifetime, you know, uh, health crisis, you know, that we experienced. And so, um, as you mentioned, you know, during the pandemic, you saw a steep decline, a steep decline when it comes to, you know, people who were being, you know, admitted to certain facilities. And there were, there was also a bunch of uncertainty within the facility about, you know, how, you know, people were faring, you know, there was just a lot of information that a lot of people, you know, who have loved ones who are incarcerated, a lot of information that those folks didn't have. So I think similar to how we saw with, you know, various other agencies, the DOC was very much affected um, trying to figure out exactly how to handle this, this health crisis. So with Willard being the latest to close, do you know what will happen to the 260 people who were incarcerated as well as the 71 staffers? Right. So so when you have these these prison closures, these, these facility closures, what typically happens is, is that the people who are incarcerated within those facilities, which at Willer was calculated approximately around 260 people, according to the Department of Correction and also the governor's office, those people will be transferred to other correctional facilities throughout the state. And as for the, the around 70 people who work at the Willer Correctional Facility, they'll also be transferred to, to nearby correctional facilities. So, you know, Angel Kiros, the DOC commissioner, has often noted, you know, how difficult the process is, particularly for people having to, you know, readjust to a completely new environment. Um, but it's also something that he said, you know, needs to happen when you talk about the declining numbers of the people who are incarcerated um, and also all the money that, that the state is essentially saving taxpayers, right, by, by closing these facilities uh, to, to meet, you know, the current situation. So Commissioner Kiros has been closing prisons, which is sort of a part of his M.O. Can you talk about the decisions that seems to be around the operating costs and what does that look like in terms of you mentioning earlier, too, that this, the $20 million annually, that's the savings with these three prisons closing. How are they related and how will the closure save the state annually? So, I mean, to your point, I mean, it, so it, it's actually close. And it's funny, I, I stand north of 20 million, but the number is actually close to it's, it's a little more than, than 26 and a half million dollars when you, when you get to the specific numbers of you know the closures of the three prisons that have shuttered operations um, over the last you know couple years and whatnot. And so what that money does is it, it's essentially money in the budget that can go anywhere you know, as I guess, you know, the, the people who make those decisions as they see fit. Right. So it's there's no specific allocation for those dollars, you know, in the moment, which actually, you know, there there's a concerted movement to get those get those dollars, you know, reinvested back into the communities who've been most affected by mass incarceration. Um, but yeah, those monies are the, the money is essentially dollars that, again, the, the state can use, uh, you know, throughout its budget. Right. So and, and then I should note that throughout the governor's proposed budget, it notes, you know, the, the availability of the specifically the six, the six north of six million dollars when it comes to Willard's closing. But it doesn't specifically say or, or you know, provide a, a direct explanation of where that money specifically going to go. Well, I think you kind of answered this question already. But do you have a sense of where this money is being used to reinvest or any idea? You know, I, you know, I don't. And the one thing, as, as I mentioned before, when we talk about, you know, the movement to to close some of these prisons, I mean, I think you have to. This has been a, a years and years long movement when it when it comes from the on the behalf of advocates, I should say, excuse me, you know, when it comes to 
trying to close some of these prisons, you know, uh, you know, following an era of mass incarceration that we know disproportionately affected black and brown people, um, you know, specifically concentrated in Connecticut's, you know, biggest cities are Bridgeport, New Haven, you know, uh, Hartford, uh, Waterbury, you go on and on and on. These are, you know, folks that continually have, you know, the highest incarceration rates um, and also, you know, states that have have also, you know, suffered from a lack of resources, if we're being, you know, honest, right, when you look at the history of it. And so I think that when we're talking about reentry and also when we're talking about prevention, right, preventing people from being incarcerated, that's been, you know, the 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 message from advocates in this space is that, you know, we've, you know, we 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 have all this money available, you know, from the closure of these prisons that have affected so many families. So why not take those dollars and put them in places that benefit those same families that have been in communities, excuse me, that have been, you know, affected by, you know, the policies that, that led to the mass incarceration of, 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 of those people. And so while we wait to figure out, you know, exactly where these dollars are going, and you mentioned, you know, kind of coming back to society, there's education, there's, I mean, life skills, really. Do you know what kind of resources are advocates saying that are specifically needed to ease the transition out of prison? Right. So I, I think it's the things you mentioned, right? I mean, you talk about education, you talk about housing. I mean, these are all essential things that, you know, many people, you know, you know, we take for granted on a day to day basis that we have access to. But, you know, when you look at the reality of it, there are a bunch of families, again, who don't have equal access, you know, to the same quality of resources. I mean, just yesterday there was, a, you know, a public hearing of testimony of people who are incarcerated, who are leaving, you know, the state's prisons and jails and don't even have identification, right? IDs, right? What you need to open a bank account, what you need to apply for jobs, what you need to do any kind of basic movement in this state, in this country, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that there, you know, there's a real, I think, need, you know, I think you can make the argument, right, that those dollars, perhaps uh, at least a portion, right, which I think some lawmakers are pushing for, there's a need for those dollars to go back into those specific places, into those specific spaces, right, where people just need kind of a, a push, right, to, to get back reacclimated to society. But also when we talk about prevention, right, when we talk about investment into these communities that have been affected by mass incarceration, you know, after school programs for kids, right, when it comes to, you know, you know, food, housing, et cetera, et cetera, all these things, you can't talk about crime, you can't talk about incarceration without talking about poverty, right? So I, I just think that all those things are a part of the conversation at this very moment. Well, we will definitely continue to follow up on that. Jaden Edison, he's the Connecticut Mirror Justice Reporter. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're currently hearing a song or about to hear a song that's co-produced for Abolition Transmission, a radio show by incarcerated abolitionists. WPKN producer Louise Luna will join us later this hour to discuss. After the break, a sneak peek of the latest cut line airing tonight on CPTV, all about the transforming corrections in Connecticut. Do you have loved ones on the inside? You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
when the game is They say that they want justice, but justice by just them is nothing but a hustle, extortion, corruption. It's nothing but a Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. With declining prison populations in Connecticut, three facilities have closed in two years. Investigative reporters with the Accountability Project at Connecticut Public recently traveled to Norway with a group of Connecticut policymakers and stakeholders. The main reason for this trip is to identify the gaps in resources that might ease reentry for people while they're incarcerated. The new cut line, Transforming Corrections, premieres on CPTV at 8 p.m. And joining me now to preview this deep dive is Bria Lloyd. She's an investigative reporter for the Accountability Project who's been covering this issue. Bria, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Bria, you traveled to Norway through Yukon's Institute for Municipal and Regional Policy. What was the goal of that trip? So, Norway, as many of you may know, has some of the best prisons in the world. And so that group wanted to go there and see what they could learn from their prison system and what practices they could bring back home. So that was the the overall goal of the trip. There were activists, there were DOC people, educators from all across the state who went to see what they could learn and bring back home. And with that experience, you know, back home here, you observed the WORTH unit at your correctional, which stands for Women Overcoming Recidivism Through Hard Work. Can you tell us about this unit and give us a sense of, you know, comparing and contrasting to what you saw at Norway? Yeah, of course. So this unit was at the woman's um, prison um, in the state at York, and it opened up a few years back. And a similar one is open for men as well in, in the state. And these prisons were inspired by several years ago, state officials went to, to Germany to look at, at their prisons as well, because they have great prisons over there also. And so they inspired these two units on the prisons they saw there. So at the Worth unit that's at York, it's a very different environment as to what you would imagine um, like prison here to be. And so it's a smaller unit. In York, there's about 700 people overall. And in Worth currently during our visit, there were 17. The unit can hold up to 60 people. And 
it's a different scenario. They don't have cells, they have cubes. And so they don't have, they're, they're not behind um, like physical bars. They have dogs over there that they train. Many of them are in college. One person that we met has a job at an engineering company and she has savings and a 401k. And so when she leaves, she'll be set up really, which is great to hear. And so I think there's more opportunities there. And the goal of that unit is to have younger women between the ages of 18 and 25 be paired with a mentor who's been in that facility for a longer time to help guide them because they understand that once they leave prison, they will be on the outside and they want everyone in the unit to have a better opportunity. So I think that unit was a lot more like what I saw when I was in in Norway. The only difference is that in Norway, all of their facilities for the most part share a very similar goal to this. And so instead of it just being open to a handful of people, it's open to a lot of people. And so that seems like a pretty huge contrast in terms of what we know as just laymen in terms of what a prison looks like. So you mentioned they're in cubes, they are getting an education, they have jobs and mentorships. Can you talk about sort of the philosophical differences in terms of how you know the Norway um, experience, how they treat incarcerated people versus here? Because they're people, not just prisoners, right? Yeah. So just to clarify, as as Warden Sexton mentioned when we spoke to her at York, people on the other side do have access to school as well. It just seems like people in that unit have more access and a better understanding of the opportunities that they have. And so I think overall, some of the main differences and one of the common themes that I kept hearing was these people are people. And when they leave here, they could live right next door to you. And so Do you want the person who lives next door to you to have had opportunities to become, you know, like a better person and to grow and to be reintroduced back into society? Or would you want someone who has been locked behind bars and just treated terribly for the whole time that they were there? And so I think it's a societal difference. They just view like incarcerated people there just as just as anybody else and as people and as humans and it's not just the people who work in, in the prison system, it's the entire country. And so I feel like that's the main difference here is we would need both of those things to change, to see wide scale change like in the state and across the, the country. And so you mentioned education, and you've also reported an 86% drop in the number of incarcerated people who are enrolled in GED programs since 2016. And you know, making a note that the figure is steeper than the decline in the state's prison population. Can you talk us through these findings? Yeah. So education in Norway is very interesting because the education system for the country is the edu- is the same system for the people that are in prison so that was something that we learned there that was very interesting so when we came back home we kind of wanted to see what our education looked like and that's what we found that there was a very steep drop in the in the amount of people that were getting GEDs from um in prison while well, in prison here and so the DOC basically explained this drop started back in, in 2016 and there were layoffs that year. So they say that's a big reason why there was a drop. They were also switching from, from paper testing to, to doing testing in a lab. And the lab was, it was under construction during that time. And the pandemic made these issues worse. 
So once we found those numbers, we brought them back um, to the DOC, and that's how they explained what happened there. And Bria, you're also involved in a panel discussion tonight related to this topic. we got about a minute left, but we'd love to you just kind of give a preview of what to expect. Yes, it's at the Bijou Theater in Bridgeport, which I'm very excited about. So we'll basically be, our team will be speaking with a few people who went on the trip and just kind of following up on what they learned and what, and what we observed during our time in Norway. Perfect. Thank you so very much. Bria Lloyd is an investigative reporter for the Accountability Project here at Connecticut Public. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Again, Transforming Corrections premieres on CPTV at 8 p.m. You can find out more information at ctpublic.org slash cutline. Coming up, we'll hear from Luis Luna about how he uses radio and music as a tool in organizing and educating. He's a WPKN radio producer who co-produces Abolition Transmission. Do you have loved ones on the inside? You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. How can broadcast radio be a tool for educating and even organizing? This question guides our next guest. Louise Luna is a New Haven-based radio producer for WPKN, an artist and a community organizer for the Husky for Immigrants campaign. Thanks so much, Louise, for joining us today. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Do you have loved ones on the inside? You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Louise, you know, when you're sort of formatting the show for Abolition Transmission, how did that come about, and why is co-producing so important to you? Well, thank you. Um, so I, so the, the, the program, um, Starting as a as a continuance of uh, some of the radio work that I have been that I have been doing for the last uh, five or six years, uh, especially after the Trump administration uh, started to enact uh, really uh, harmful um, immigration policies, so I uh, started to do radio uh, with the with the idea that radio can be can go beyond. Uh, can can go beyond just sharing music, but rather really starting to organize folks who are on the ground. Um, and the 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 show uh, was produced. So abolition transmission has been has been co-produced by abolitionists who are in the south, who are in the south in the southwest, and as north as Illinois. And we wanted to make sure that their voices are centered. And one question that we that we asked ourselves is, you know, where are folks where where are folks in terms of their understanding of abolition? So we created a survey that 
uh, we sent by uh, by mail um, about some of the some of their uh, answers on on abolition on the on the prison industrial complex and also thinking about you know what is crime and what is what is harm. And we're definitely going to dig deeper on that in a little bit, especially um, with the education that comes along with it. But I also want to spend some time to ask and ask you, you know, tell us a little bit about the music that we've been hearing, because they were also collaborations as well, right? Yeah, no, thank you. So the music that you uh, that you heard um, earlier on was a inside-outside collaboration. Um, so one of our contributors um, wrote the the song, um, and then the the instrument uh, was put together on the outside uh, by one of our uh, outside contributors who who put together the the music uh, on his uh, home studio here in New Haven and then mixed it all together. Um, and then that that was a really interesting way of of uh, of uh, connecting uh, folks who are on the inside. And then folks who are on the outside through music, and I and you know we feel that music uh, it's such an important aspect of you know keeping our spirits uh, alive in light of all of the uh, things that are happening now and how uh, music can really be a powerful tool to uh, to really speak about the the issues that our community uh, faces. Um, so it was it was a really interesting process and. Uh, you know, we were really happy on on how uh, the the couple of songs that we produced uh, came out. Was it important for you to have music play a role in in your radio show? Yes. Um, so, um, for sure. So when I so my my program, which airs actually today, uh, we have our our my program is called the Lunar Module, and uh, in this three hour monthly program, that's where I have been developing this this uh, this this uh, other uh, programming. Um, so in my show, I I share music that is alternative, that is also that also has some political content to it as well. And I, the feedback that I get from listeners is is really positive because um, it's music that you don't really hear on on commercial radio uh, stations, um, especially when we are listening to hip hop or we're listening to um, the the song that uh, we just heard just before this section uh, was by a band called called uh, Los Jornaleros del Norte, the day laborers of the north, that was born from. Um, uh, the, the, the was born in 1994 uh, from when there was a raid and one of the singers uh, was at a health clinic where they were giving some uh, some testing for HIV and AIDS and um, the, the, the place was raided and some people were detained. Um, so he started to share this, this, uh, these stories through music. Um, so I, you know, I feel that uh, music can be really, uh, important and can also accompany uh, the movement. So in the first episode of the show, you asked incarcerated contributors to define abolition and PIC, or the prison industrial complex. Let's take a listen to some of the responses that you got for abolition. From where we are now in prison, sometimes we can't really imagine what abolition is going to look like. Because the prison industrial complex is not an isolated system, abolition is a broad strategy. 
An abolition vision means that we must build models today that can represent how we want to live in the future. It means developing practical strategies for taking small steps that move us toward making our dreams real and lead us all to believe that things really could be different. It means living this vision in our daily lives. Anything with care and connection to me is potentially abolition. And anything that actually depends upon caging and exiling people can't be abolition. For me, abolition is the understanding that slavery still exists today in various forms and that slavery is a human rights issue and morally wrong. To me, abolition is not about setting criminals free. It's about doing what prisons say they were designed to do, but actually don't. Abolition to me is about creating better options for those fighting poverty and for those suffering from mental illness as well as substance abuse issues that may lead to crime. Abolition is hope. Abolition is freedom. Abolition is the place to stand if you want to be on the right side of history. Abolition is now. Thank you. So those are really powerful messages that we just heard. You know, how did you collect these, Louise? Were they anonymous? Were people willing to share what they thought? You know, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so I worked with, uh, so my co-producer, um, their name is uh, A, um, and they have been working with uh, folks inside for a few years. Um, and we we got together uh, about a year ago, and uh, we decided to, you know, work together on, on, on a show that, um, that can be broadcast over, over, over WPKN. Um, so the way that we collected this testimony was through, um, a correspondence and then having conversations over the, over the phone. And it took about a year to get responses from, from everyone, get, uh, put everything together and then decide which responses would go into the, into the program itself. Um, so we, it was a democratic process where everyone um, who was involved, there's uh, 13 uh, contributors strewn across the across the U.S. Um, and everyone voted on their on their favorite response. So then that's how we and then we um, we recorded those those responses um, with the th- uh, 13 folks who were who were there uh, to make sure that everyone who is involved, everyone who's a contributor, um, also has a has a voice in uh, in uh, speaking about this uh, these three questions. And how would you define abolition, Louise, and also the prison industrial complex? Yeah, that, I mean that's a that's a really good question. I think um, uh, you know I defined uh, abolition as creating something new, um, as uh, getting rid of uh, institutions that have been created to harm and to uh, to exclude people to uh, to put them in in cages. Um, I think that listening to our previous, con- uh, our, our, the previous guests, uh, and thinking about how, uh, some prisons are operating in Norway, uh, I think it's important to see that people who are behind prisons are, are humans and that they have, uh, a lot of potential and that, um, the system that has created or, or the system that we have now is horrendous and should not be, ex- and should not exist. Um, so for me, it's creating something new and, uh, you know, getting rid of uh, these institutions that have uh, caged and have uh, continued, uh, you know, white supremacy um, within the United States. And can you give us a preview of tonight's episode? You'll be focusing on Connecticut prisons. 
Yeah, so you know, we we are very excited about today. Um, so today we're going to um, highlight some projects that are happening here in Connecticut. Um, one of them is uh, one of our contributors is uh, doing a uh, survey on uh, prison labor um, and thinking about uh, how folks in prison are um, are the, how their labor is being being uh, used uh, and exploited. Um, so they they're working on a project to get you know to collect information and 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 create a report uh, on that and see how you know how how prison labor is is really working. Um, we're also going to be uh, speaking a bit about the uh, homeless encampment uh, in New Haven um, because I think there's a direct um, tie between homelessness and unhoused folks and the prison industrial comple uh, complex and how. Uh, uh, difficult and how expensive it is to be poor and how incredibly um, it's it's virtually impossible sometimes to get up, get up your feet and get an apartment, you know, knowing that rents are so high that um, that uh, some uh, renter, some uh, landlords will ask for a uh, for for a credit report and you know how just virtually impossible it is to to get off your feet um, if you are unhoused. Um, and we're going to share a couple of songs. Uh, and, you know, so these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, here. And we're also going to have some, some, um, some uh, testimony of, uh, of a couple of folks who are incarcerated here in Connecticut. Um, and the WPKN reaches um, seven uh, prisons and jails in Connecticut, um, from Danbury to Bridgeport to New Haven to Cheshire. Uh, so we have been working with folks um, Doing outreach on in, on the inside, so folks on the inside uh, can listen to the show and 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 feel part of this uh, this process. And I want to definitely explore your experiences beyond Connecticut, but because your show is focused on the state tonight, I do want to ask. You know, you've had so many powerful experiences building. Um, shows that impact folks on the inside. Was there anything in particular about this episode that jumped out to you? Was there anything that took you by surprise and you're just like, oh my God, what? Yeah, I mean, I think like the resilience, I mean, I'm always surprised about the resilience of folks who, who are uh, on the inside. I mean, I cannot imagine, uh, I cannot imagine to be caged for decades um, and to be able to keep your spirit alive and to continue to to live um, I think, uh, you know, it always surprises me just how strong folks are and how like the human, uh, spirit, um, continues to just, you know, not die. And this is something that, you know, really inspires me. Um, I, um, uh, I grew up, uh, undocumented. I was born in Ecuador. Um, and, you know, many of my, of my family members uh, are undocumented. One of my uncle was support, one of my uncle was supported, uh, years ago. Um, so, you know, so for so for me, uh, I, I'm always just uh, trying to really match like people's resilience and people's you know willingness to uh, continue to move uh, forward. You know, under really unfavorable uh, circumstances. So I want to share a report that we did recently that uh, New Haven city officials have issued a second eviction order for members of Tent City on Wednesday. Uh, it's an encampment that is composed of at least eight people experiencing homelessness. Now, and this is kind of related, not related, but I wanted to ask your thoughts about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is it is related in 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 some ways. Um, I mean, unhoused uh, folks um, uh, sometimes come are you know come from prison, and um, you know, as I mentioned before, it's you know it's very difficult to to find housing, you know, when you have so many odds against you. Um, I think it's important also to understand that um, that folks who are unhoused they also don't have access to mental health to mental health to proper nutrition um to you know all of the uh, things that they need to be able to thrive um and we have been seeing uh recently how uh rents have really been displacing folks um and how folks uh, who are being displaced who cannot pay rent anymore they might end up being unhoused um so you know these things are are, are related and i think like some of the things that we want to do in this show is is um, help us understand like the connective tissue uh, between um, between all of these uh, systems. And so you mentioned earlier you're surprised or you you learn a lot from the resiliency of of people who are incarcerated. But can you talk about the vulnerability as well? Because at the end of the day, like we've been talking about this last hour, is there there's still people in the end? You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the system itself uh, makes uh, folks uh, like being just one step away from from re from being uh, taken back by by the prison system. Um, you know, year, years ago, um, I, when I worked at Connecticut Working Families Party, I had one of my canvassers. He was I he uh, had spent uh, about seven years in prison and. He, uh, you know, he came to, you know, looking for work, um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed working with him. He, we were knocking doors uh, for some, um, for some political campaigns, and uh, sorry, for some uh, for paid family medical leave, um, and he got into an argument with someone, and he was taken right back to jail. Um, and the argument uh, was around him having more access uh, to his things when when he was in a in a in a halfway home. So and how he was being treated, um, how, and he, how he was being treated in that in that um, in that halfway home. Um, and then he ended up going back, and uh, and this was just really so. Folks are you know a step away from from being taken back and. As I, you know, as I mentioned before, it's just so difficult to to thrive when you don't have access to an ID after you come back from after you come back from jail, and uh, when you don't have a place to uh, to live, and uh, how difficult it is to get a job if you don't have a place to to live and to uh, take care of yourself, to make yourself some food, to uh, clean yourself. Uh, so those are really difficult. Um, and almost impossible ways to to like get back to to a good life if you don't have those opportunities. And thanks for sharing your surprise because I think you know oftentimes there are gaps in understanding and information of what happens on the inside. And I think uh, people might be surprised to hear that even simple public service announcements like information on stimulus check may not happen, whereas we we get that information. And as Abria Lloyd, our investigative reporter, mentioned earlier too, is you know if you don't have an ID you can't do anything and you just echo that right now. Can you talk about 
some of the things that you learned related to that, you know, the conversations you're having with people, what are people surprised about? Yeah, well, um, I, I mean, I can speak about like about uh, this, the, that uh, prisons are highly surveilled uh, uh, places. That information, uh, it's very hard. It's very hard to access information when you're behind, uh, behind prisons. So doing in 2020, when the second round of stimulus checks opened up for folks on the inside, um, we were, I was working with, um, with uh, the, the Connecticut Bell Fund. Uh, I helped them develop uh, a show called Resilience Behind the Walls, which had the same radio theory of creating content. Um, that can be shared through the airwaves and folks can listen to that um, behind prison walls. So we found out that it was very, that not a lot of people inside of prisons understood that or knew that they could get a stimulus check, but they needed to do, they needed to like file some, some paperwork. So in one of those shows, what we did was uh, we put out the information and said, hey, you know, if you're listening, you're entitled to, to a stimulus check and this is what you have to do. Um, so, you know, we were using the airwaves as, as ways to share information back and forth, um, and how people on the inside can, can access this information that sometimes is, is, is not given, given to them. Um, so, you know, I was, I was also, you know, as, as I'm working on this, uh, on, on, on radio, I'm, I'm always surprised as to like, you know, the different ways that we can use, uh, radio to inform and also to hear uh, what folks are going through on the inside. So you also took a similar approach to the podcast, Melting the Ice. Can you share with us what that experience was like and what is Melting the Ice? Yeah, so that, um, so Melting the Ice was, was one of my earlier, earlier projects uh, that started in 2019. And uh, it started from a conversation. I was introduced to, uh, to a radio producer who was at Yale University uh, who was working, who had worked uh, in Kentucky um, in a show called uh, Calls from Home, where a family uh, from folks incarcerated in that part of Kentucky would send messages to the radio station and the radio station would broadcast those those messages um, and folks on the inside would would hear this. So I was doing some I was doing some uh, some some radio work here um, and then we we just came up with the idea of like doing melting the ice at that moment. Um, this was during the Trump administration. Um, and we, I understood, I started to understand how, um, the prison industrial complex and how companies were benefiting from detention and deportation. So I wanted to find stories that can help us understand the mechanisms of the, of detention and deportation. Uh, so melting the ice was born. Um, and we created this, uh, this, this, uh, this, this, uh, this program that we broadcasted, uh, broadcast over WPKN, but also we were able to get, um, WKCR in New York City, which is Columbia University's, uh, radio station to play that show over the airwaves, um, coming out of, um, uh, Manhattan and the signal reached for detention centers, uh, in New Jersey. Um, so we created the show for us to send over the airwaves um, this show, and then folks on the inside who are on the in detention could, uh, would be able to hear um, the uh, would be able to hear this program. And there we shared information on how to get uh, how to get uh, support um, 
uh, under uh, your depo deportation uh, proceedings. So that's how everything was born. And um, and melting the ice, uh, we had uh, seven episodes, um, and we were able to uh, also work with organizations on the ground who were working directly with uh, folks in detention uh, for them to uh, know that this show was was happening. And that's where we also showed uh, played music too, because I think. Um, you know, music can go really, really deep. Uh, you know, if you grow up, um, loving one song, you know, maybe 20, 30 years later, you're still going to hold that song, uh, you know, very closely to you. Uh, so we, you know, we, we had a, the opportunity to share music and share, uh, resources and, and, and connections for folks who were, uh, detained. I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of people with you saying that, you know, we hold on to music and songs that we hold all memories to. And I have so many questions I want to ask you, but I do want you to share. Um, you've had a powerful experience producing this for one individual in solitary um, from Cumbia. Can you talk uh, talk to us about that experience? Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. I would love for you to share an experience that you had producing the music you were just talking about for one individual who was in solitary uh, from Cumbia. Yes. Um, so so the uh, so one of our one of our contributors who's a musician, uh, you know worked on uh, worked on this on this piece. Um, and, uh, he has, well, they, they have been, uh, working with the, with the, with the person who, and we're not, we're not, uh, giving any names because of, uh, just because of security, uh, just to make sure that they, they are safe where, where, where they are incarcerated. Um, but it was a really powerful thing. It was, yeah, my understanding was, you know, there were multiple conversations and, and, uh, and the song was written. Um, and then um, our contributor on the outside, uh, just uh, the genius that he is, he just, he just kind of like put the music together. And then the music was um, when he had the first draft of the, of the song. The song was also uh, shared um, on the inside, and that that collaboration uh, was really fascinating to see and to be able to really break those barriers. And and um, you know, some experience, some something that I've heard from folks inside is that. Is that uh, on this particular project on um, on abolition transmission? Is that they have felt that they have a purpose that they that they can share and educate other folks and also connect within them with themselves across uh, state lines um, on the issues of, of abolition. So they there's there's some reading groups that they that they are involved in. Uh, you know, reading materials on on abolition on on like creating uh, new uh, creating uh, new things. Um, and it's been really, really transforming uh, for me to be a part of this. Um, and I think like my role has been to facilitate the space, you know, to facilitate uh, the access to the transmitter and to be able to uh, stitch together all of the sounds and all of these ideas and and their testimony into one uh, program that can then be shared uh, with a larger audience. And in this case, too, with folks who are on the inside here in Connecticut. So we've only have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to ask, you know, you've you're you've been using radio as a format to to organize and to educate. I wanted to ask, you know, what are your philosophy philosophies behind that? Yeah, I mean, I think like it comes from like from lived experience. You know, I, I came as a I came as a young uh, immigrant. Um, I felt that um, that 
I, I know I lived through, you know, really a, a lot of har- hardships, you know, grow, growing up. And I mean, my philosophy is like to be able to share, uh, you know, to be able to share, to to like uh, be there for one another, um, um, to you to be resourceful, uh, to also uh, transfer knowledge. I think that's really, really important. Um, and to be able to share the airwaves. So, you know, my show is, a, is every month. It's a three hour show. And I have, and I have been creating, um, content that is, that I haven't made just myself. You know, I think like my philosophy is, is, is really deeply grounded on, on, on collaboration and knowing that, yeah, that one person cannot do it all. And that, and that if we want to change, uh, the systems that we want to change, we need to work together. Uh, we need to strategize and move forward. Um, and knowing that that all of our struggles are connected, that uh, the issues around incarceration are connected to the issues of of, of the unhoused, that um, that uh, that you know all of this, all of our struggles are connected. And you know, and I just want to facilitate that space uh, for folks to use the radio specifically as a tool to organize. We want to thank you so much for sharing your story and other people's stories on our airwaves this morning. Uh, We would love to have you back soon to discuss your work for Husky for Immigrants. And just another reminder for our listeners about Abolition Transmission that airs today from 4 to 7 p.m. Find out more information at abolitiontransmission.org. You've been listening to Luis Luna. He's a WPKN producer and community organizer. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Have a, have a great day. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Extortion, corruption. It's nothing but a scheme. The rich they let go free. While the poor and other keep. Come and ransom me. Come and ransom me. When the game is not a... Never mind, guess it's too late. I'm on that prison bus chain. Got option by the DA. A number is my new name. They got me in that work squad. Their work time is a big fraud. It doesn't count with my parole. And it's ace behind when I go. A product of the system. Hug my kids and kiss them. The next time that they see me. Man, they'll be damn near 30. When the game is they say that they want justice, but just us by just them. It's nothing but a hustle, extortion, corruption. It's nothing but a scheme. The rich they let go free for the poor and the key. Come and ransom me, come and ransom me. When the game is not a game.